I am the slowest application writer ever. Like it is painful <laughs> to watch me write these things because I get like mentally caught up in like convincing myself that I like, you know, my work will never cut it. So why bother trying? Well, thanks Vicky for joining me today. Uh, why don't we start with just a quick introduction about, you know, who you are and, and where you're uh, chatting from today. Why, thank you, Tilak. Um, I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Vicki, and I am an assistant professor in mechanical engineering at the University of British Columbia's Okanagan campus. Um, I'm part of this or joining this podcast from the traditional and ceded territory of Silk Okanagan Nation. Um, and I'm really excited to be to have the chance to work in this role um, today and moving forward. Um, I first met Tilak um, several years ago at the University of Toronto when I was making decisions on where to go for my PhD um, and ultimately ended up working um, in, in his area at Toronto Rehab. Yeah, fantastic. So, so what, you know, as you were thinking about um, your, you know, leaving your undergrad and then going into grad school, what, what was the process you went through? You know, you were, I believe you're from Alberta originally, is that right? Yeah. So what made you think about coming to Ontario and coming to Tor University of Toronto? Right. So um, I went to uh, University of Toronto for my undergrad. Um, I did my uh, undergrad studies in engineering science at U of T and studied the biomedical engineering option, um, where a lot of my work at the time in my courses focused on wet lab type stuff. So a lot of pipetting, a lot of running assays. Um, and I think I got great training as an undergrad student in that area and then worked in a laboratory for a summer. And I was like, oh, man, like I, I, I cannot pipette for the rest of my life. Like this is not a like viable long term career plan for me. Interesting. Um, and I guess while that was going on, when I was in high school and in undergrad, um, I always had a very strong interest in working with people. So I was an active volunteer. Um, in communities with disabilities. Um, as a high school student, I volunteered at a preschool that integrated kids with disabilities with, um, with other kids. Um, so I'd work on things like, how do we make snowman building accessible for everyone as a high school project? <laughs> um, and then in university, I was also, again, quite involved in the community. So I was a, I swam on the varsity swim team and we had a partnership with Special Olympics Ontario. Um, so I did a fair bit of coaching of um, Ontario's top Special Olympic swimming athletes. Very neat. Um, I didn't know about that. That's really... That's yeah. Um, so that kind of got me into working in biomechanics laboratories and motor control laboratories over the summer. Um, so I spent a summer working at um, University of Calgary on a scoliosis project. Um, I spent another summer working at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehab Hospital um, with Tom Chow on um, this this project looked at um, using accelerometers to try to distinguish successful from unsuccessful swallowing in people with um, dysphagia. So that's like disordered swallowing from conditions like cerebral palsy or strokes or other conditions like that. Um, so anyway, that was long winded, but circling back, um, I had some great summer experiences in the rehab area. Um, and I still hadn't really been thinking grad school because I decided that swimming was more important than, you know, undergrad and wrapped up fourth year with like a 77 average and figured that was kind of it for my academic pursuits. Okay. Um, and then I started getting emails from other faculty members being like, hey, Vicky, given your Special Olympics interest, maybe you'd 
you know, enjoy working in um, pursuing grad studies in this area. I hope you're aware that U of T has some, you know, exceptional researchers in rehab engineering. Um, so I still wasn't really thinking it. I was like, whatever, I'm never going to get in. Um, Interesting. And then was able to speak with some mentors and they're like, you know, just treat the entrance average as a technicality. You know, it'll it'll be fine as long as you can find someone to commit funding and given your research background, you'll probably be able to manage that. Um, Excellent. So that, it's similar to what Ahmed, you know, Ahmed chatted with me previous to you and, and he said something similar, you know, that his, uh, yeah, that he was a little worried about his marks and whether that would get him into grad school or not. But, you know, I think that's an important takeaway is U of T seem, or at least uh, BME leaves that door open for people, right? That they don't, or SGS, I guess, at University of Toronto Grad School, they don't shut the door for people. Like some other places might say you need a over 80, whatever, over 85 average cutoff. But that's, yeah, good. That, that's the second time that someone's mentioned that. Cool. Yeah. No, it was really helpful that U of T is flexible that way. Um, and that BME has a recommended average, but ultimately it's about whether you can find someone who's willing to support you for two to four years, depending on what grad work you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, um, so where did you hear about, so you ended up doing your, your, um, your PhD. Did you come right in as a PhD or did you start as a master's and then transition? Uh, I came in as PhD. So after finishing undergrad, I was like, I'm done with school. Um, I went and worked for a year (laughs) and it was one of the best decisions I had ever made ever. Like I would highly recommend that year of not being in school to everyone. Um, because when I went crawling back to graduate studies, I was like, I really want to do grad school. Um, so at the time, work? I ended up getting into a um, a master's program at Imperial College out in London, UK. Right. Um, because they had the opportunity for me to specialize in neurotechnology. So I could take courses in like brain machine interfacing. Um, let's see, neuromuscular control like entire courses to dedicate to these areas where I wanted to build skills um, that were different from the pipetting and the assays that I got out of undergrad. <laughs> um, so while I was out there, my first thought was that, okay, I'll get this master's, I'll go into industry, and then I'll just like be done with school and start making money and like, that'll be it. Um, and then I ended up working with a team that um, did really exciting work in upper limb movement control. Um, And I'm going through this and thinking like, okay, so I'm excelling in this area. Um, You know, maybe I wasn't the best student in undergrad, but it's a whole new ball game now that I'm in this master's program, Um, you know, effectively wiping the slate clean. Um, I wasn't keen on the UK's funding structures for PhD students. And that aligned with when U of T got a whole bunch of money for rehab engineering um, through an answer create award. so it just meant that there were a lot more funds available to support trainees um, in getting started before my CV was competitive for um, other larger scholarships. Um, mm-hmm. And then that also coincided with when the facilities at Toronto Rehab were opening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I'd applied um, to TRI and to Northwestern because they have the um, what was then the Rehab Institute of Chicago. I think they're the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab right now. Um, and ended up getting into PhD programs in both cases, not because of my grades, but because I was able to make a credible case for actually caring about the field. Um, and then um, decision time hit. And 
how, how do you say no to the opportunity to work in SEAL and spend a few years like destabilizing people for <laughs> science and a living? <laughs> yeah. So for those who don't know, the SEAL is the acronym for the Challenging Environments Assessment Laboratory at Toronto Rehab. So it's the, I guess it's mainly the basement labs, but the, the combination of all the simulation facilities that are, that I guess opened, would it have been 2012 ish, 2011, 2012 ish that, that were developed by Jeff Rennie and, and opened uh, around the time that you would have started your, uh, your yeah. PhD. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that was, that was the, it was the ability to play with kind of all those new labs and, and technologies. Yeah. Was, was the other thing I'll add to this was um, it was really important to me to go and do my grad work in an area that would make a difference. Um, so I became really good at the scientific aspects at Imperial. I wanted something that was a bit um, more directly applied, where I didn't have to go through like pages and pages of writing to explain why my work mattered. Yes. Um, and it coincided, the timing for me coincided with when, um, I guess a few people at TRI got a large grant to develop home care or products to improve home care. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to work on a few of those and it'll, it, it would, I knew it would allow me to graduate knowing that I'd done something important. Mm -hmm. um, even if it was going to be extra work, um, I was excited that Toronto Rehab provided the opportunity to, you know, to potentially leave and, and, and make a difference during grad school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's right. You did a lot on the home care products and, and it was quite a bit removed if I remember correctly from your thesis projects, yeah. <laughs> which I know was probably, you know, so basically it added all this extra work for you. How, you know, but, but also I, you know, I, uh, you know, I was tangentially involved in some of those projects. So I felt like I was learning along with you as you were, you know, doing all these extra tests on grab bars and things. How, what do you think now in retrospect, how do you feel about having been involved, being pulled into that kind of product development work? Um, when, in parallel with trying to get a thesis done, would you recommend it to other students to be involved in things like that? Um, so I think every student is unique and every student's goals are unique. Um, so when I started my PhD, I kind of assumed it, that it was a pathway to get a better job doing research and development in industry. Um, so the time that I spent on advancing products made a lot of sense. Um, and they were also at the point where we were pretty confident they'd make it to market. Mm -hmm. um, so I found that actually made it harder to pull back rather than easier because I was like, okay, if I work on this for another six months, um, it's going to be the difference between getting this critical data from beta testing um, in patient rooms at Toronto Rehab versus not. Mm -hmm. um, and that really excited me. Um, now, having said all this, um, I think it took a while for me to give myself a chance to excel in science. Mm -hmm. um, so when I stopped working on the product development stuff and focused a bit more on my thesis, um, I discovered that I'm actually a lot more sciencey inclined than I ever dreamt I was. Um, and if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, um, you know, I would have said, no, I'm going to industry. I'm not going to be in academia. I, you know, I'll, I'll do the minimum science to graduate, but I'm in it for the products. Um, right. And... And I think when I gave myself a chance to like really soak in, um, in the scientific work. So this looked at, um, basically how people recover from balance loss and how the design of the built environment around them affects how well they recover. Um, 
I got really excited by how a lot of our understanding of human movement just totally degenerates when um, you're dealing with the rapid context of balance recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back, I kind of wish I'd given myself a chance to just soak in that a bit sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, had I not ended up in academia, the product work really would have really helped me, I think, get industry jobs, um, you know, recognizing that that's a route that a lot of students take once they graduate. Right. So it was, so it, it allowed you to keep your kind of option open to industry and, while kind of convincing yourself that science was in, in research, a career in academia was the way you wanted to end up. Yeah, on. I think so. It gave me a chance to, I think, work meaningfully in all those areas. And at the end of it, you know, think to myself, okay, the product work is cool. I mourn it for the science. But if I do decide to stay in academia, I still need the industry connections to support a research program, right? So yep. I think it all comes circling back to help you in the end. Um, nice. Did nice. I need to spend as long as I did on it? Probably not. Um, but, you know, that's life, right? I can't go through life <laughs> thinking back on what I could have done differently. So fair enough. Fair enough. Are you still, by the way, in, are you, uh, all the products you worked on, I can't remember all of them, but I know the, the, the grab bar, the, what, what did we call, sorry, I'm forgetting all the names. Right. Now. So they there was, bar. um, there was the move easy pole system, which is a right. handrail. So you can install in the home without drilling to the walls or the floor or the ceiling. Yes. Um, and then there's the corresponding stand easy pole system, which is a pole that is cantilevered to the wall. And it's designed for areas where you can't insert um, pressure fit poles because the um, ceilings are fake. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the goal of that is to help people get out of bed more independently. Yeah. Right. Now I'm remembering. So, so the, it's been a while since I've thought about those projects. It's been, uh, um, do you, have you been in touch with, uh, you know, are they still out there? Are they still on the market? And Andy's company still has them for sale? Um, according to the internet, they're still on the market. They're so. still there. Well, fantastic. Yeah. 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 We have a couple of really, I, I have a couple of videos actually for our little talk that we're doing for the Canadian, what is it? Association of Occupational Therapists. We're doing this thing. I was thinking about digging up one of those videos where people, you know, someone talks about how much that one of those poles helped her. Well, there's there's actually, I have a video from someone using kind of a stand easy type pole in her home next to the bed. And then I have a video of someone in uh, in the hospital next to, with the other product that you mentioned, the stand easy um, next to the bed and talking about, and he was using it to transfer out of bed into a wheelchair and talking about how amazing it was that he was able to do that independently. So it definitely has a big impact and, and kind of underrated technology so simple yet so effective and useful yeah i think so i think you know now that you mentioned that um i think one of the big things that i really took from that entire experience was that um you can spend all this time in the laboratory or in the shop building stuff testing stuff making recommendations and it's just amazing to see how your best efforts can totally fall apart (laughs) when the communication fails right (laughs) um you know, if the best, if you can't convince someone to install a product in their home, you might as well not have it. Yes. Um, so and I think a lot of your efforts in that area really kind of reinforce that key lesson to me that, you know, yeah, I think to, applies to a lot of different sectors. <laughs> trying to figure out how we actually get people to change their behavior and, and consider a new product in their life when, you know, I think, I think so, so much of this field, people don't like feeling 
um, medicalized, right? So we don't want products that make our homes look medical, like an institution. Um, and, and probably that's why people don't like, you know, even though a lot more people probably would benefit from things like canes and walkers and grab bars, they refuse generally to put them in. Yet, if we could just find a way, you know, creative ways to, to persuade people, right, gentle persuasive methods, it's, I think there's a whole area of research that, that we could be looking at for that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and the products that you worked on, the interesting thing is they are kind of temporary. So you could use the argument, why don't you just try it for a little bit? And then if it works, great. If not, we'll take it away. And, and that argument seems to work really well in, in my experience. So, yeah, cool. Yeah. So then if we move ahead from there, so you did your PhD and, and completed it successfully, and then you're thinking, okay, what next? And then how did you, what was the process kind of as you neared the completion of your, of your PhD? Right. So, um, I guess about, I want to say eight months or so before I was likely to submit my thesis internally. Um, I think about, it would have been about a year before I formally defended. Um, I started to consider postdoctoral options as well as some options outside of academia. Um, so I, I put in some applications for teaching focused faculty positions because those are a bit easier to get coming out of, um, PhD work. And I had some pretty good experiences in teaching when I was at U of T. Um, was that but I was a, also sorry. Sorry, as a as a lecture, did you lecture or was that like as a as a TA? Uh, so I was a teach. I was hired as a teaching assistant. Um, yes. So I worked with um, some of the first year and fourth year undergraduate design courses at U of T. Right. Um, but the faculty who I work with were very proactive about giving their TAs. Um, the opportunities to grow within the role um, if they wanted. So I was able to give, I think, four or five lectures nice. by the time I graduated and turned out something like four teaching-focused conference papers, which um, I think was an opportunity that I'm, I'm really glad that I got in hindsight. Mm -hmm. um, See, so I'd gone for some teaching roles. I got some interviews in that. Um, but part of me was kind of like, you know, I'm just discovering that I'm good at this research thing. I kind of want to give it more of a chance. Um, so I was thinking about who, you know, other opportunities in the area of fallen injury prevention and motor control and biomechanics. Um, and it was really important to me to get experience that would be complementary to what I got at TRI. Um, so I, um, I ended up emailing Steve Rabinovich out at Simon Fraser University um, and what prompted this was that the AgeWell Network of Centers of Excellence in Technology and Aging, that's a mouthful, but um, they released their um, postdoctoral and graduate uh, scholarship competition. Um, so I just emailed Steve and I was like, um, you know, I'm really interested in the work that you're doing. Um, uh, the AgeWell has released its like funding competition. Would you be willing to work with me on a proposal? And if it's funded, would you be willing to hire me as a postdoc? Um, and that approach, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify that I had met Steve at conferences a few years back. Um, so it's a relationship that I've been building for a couple of years. 
Um, so when I emailed him, there wasn't any question that I like was interested in falls um, <laughs> or balance or anything like that. Um, he, he recognized your name and probably had read your, you know, your PhD papers and stuff like that. Yeah. So in principle, he would have read my PhD papers, except because I spent so much time on product work, I hadn't actually published anything at that point. Right. He would have um, seen your conference presentations. Yeah. And, and he would have seen conference presentations yeah, and yeah. we, you know, we would have had discussions um, and it's not like I couldn't account for why I was being slow to publish, right? Like, you know, <laughs> instead of these, these, you know, journal articles you're looking for, here's some patents. <laughs> we can, we can pinch it with that until my PhD work comes out. Right. Right. Um, so, um, yeah. And I think, I think that approach made it attractive for both of us because it meant that we could work together on a proposal mm-hmm. and if we ended up hating the experience then, you know, you find out before anyone's packed up and moved, before any payroll decisions have been made. Um, <laughs> yes. It's well early enough that I can, you know, other options are certainly feasible without any real harm done. Yes. Um, but as it turned out, it was actually a really good experience to work together on on building that proposal and ultimately getting funded the first try. Yeah. Um, so it turned into like, you know, my, my time turned into oh, you know, I can get the science out. Maybe I'll catch the Olympics in Korea in 2018. Once I graduate, I'll take a break. You know, I <laughs> consider my options after. And that turned to like, oh, man. So I have a job in Vancouver starting in early 2018. Yeah. Um, better wrap this PhD up. Better wrap this PhD up. <laughs> um, and thankfully, my committee was very pragmatic and said, like, do the minimum to graduate and then just get the papers published as you have time to do it. So Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so so you um, so that was your postdoc. So you moved out to BC, and then um, yeah, what what was next after that? So then you was that one year or two years that you did the postdoc? Um, so I actually postdoc there for three years. Three years. So I guess a few months of that overlapped with finishing up my PhD. Right. Um. So yeah, I moved out in January twenty eighteen. Um, and then I again had the chance to be involved in a range of projects. So. Um, not so much like commercialization at the same level as what I was doing at TRI. And that was a personal choice. Um, but like I was still involved in some, um, early stage testing and, um, advancing products that had come out of the laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also involved in developing testing standards for wearable hip protectors. Um, and this is again, thinking kind of bigger picture where I was kind of like, you know, I still like the sciencey thing, but let's not kid ourselves. Jobs are limited. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been 2018, 2019, kind of pre pandemic when I was working on these types of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but as this was kind of going on, um, a lot of my PhD work went to press and then postdoc work started emerging and I'm realizing that I'm actually competitive for faculty roles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of like, okay, you know, this, I guess I submitted my first research application probably a little over a year into the postdoc. Okay. Um, and I was kind of like, okay, you know, I've, I, I've got some time left. It's, if it doesn't work out, it won't be the end of the world. Um, and ended up getting an interview on my very first try, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, was kind of luck because I then submitted, I didn't get the job. I then submitted other applications and, I think of the next like 10 applications I submitted, only one of them resulted in an interview. <laughs> um, and I guess while this was also going on, I was able to get a larger um, kind of BC's got a health research fund that's like the provincial analog of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. 
Hmm. Um, so I was able to land one of their three-year postdoctoral fellowships, and it just gave me a bit of stability and security while I figured the rest of my life out and <laughs> um, watched a lot of videos of people falling in long-term care to understand um, some of the factors that affected um, head impact and injury risk. Um, so, yeah, I think um, as I was, as I approached the end of 2019, so this is getting toward the end of my second year, though still only a year and a half post-PhD, um, I had been applying to some faculty roles throughout Canada, um, as well as to a position with the National Research Council that focused on um, policy development for the National Building Code of Canada. So kind of the other side of the table of the group that had um, used my research for my PhD. Um, so I, I got interviews with, with them and with UBC Okanagan, and all of this played out in, I think, early March 2020. So I did my like campus visit to my current role on March 10th, 2020. Um, everything collapsed, what, March 13th, I think? <laughs> um, so I ended up getting like four rejection letters from other positions I'd applied to being like, oh, this search has been canceled. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm never getting a job then. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess mercifully, like both the uh, research council and UBCO continue to plan to staff their position. So um, the paperwork ended up being signed, I think, mid-July 2020. So that's about two years post-PhD. Um, and then I made the official move to kind of end my postdoc and start in this role, um, January, 2021. Nice. Yeah. Do you think, you know, I, I think this is, I definitely felt this, what's it called? Imposter syndrome, like coming out of a PhD, you know, a year into your postdoc, you started applying for positions like that's a brave, it feels like if in that state, I would, I mean, I, uh, when I was applying for the first academic positions I was looking for, I remember feeling, oh my God, there's no way I can, uh, this is so ridiculous that I'm even applying for something like this. Do you, would you recommend it to students to do that despite how you might feel about that? Or did you, did you feel that sense at all? hundred <laughs> percent. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely say do it. And like, I am the slowest application writer ever. Like it is painful <laughs> to watch me write these things. So I get like mentally caught up in like convincing myself that I like, you know, my work will never cut it. So why bother trying? Um, so I actually submitted my very first faculty application two years before I finished my PhD. This was for a teaching role. And what that process did is that it, um, it allowed me to identify where the gaps were in my teaching portfolio. And it gave me a year to work with the professors who I knew at U of T to work on filling those gaps so that I would be competitive for future positions um, while my teaching role was still under their domain so that they could, you know, we, we knew that we could work on areas that I could build up my portfolio where I knew I'd succeed. Uh -huh. um, and then when it came to the faculty applications, I think the same logic applies. Um, one of the things that I found is that a lot of the positions that I never dreamt I'd get interviews for, I ended up getting shortlisted. And then positions that I thought I'd be a shoo-in for, I didn't get like even a first interview. So um, like my second faculty application was for a Canada research chair at University of Victoria in assistive technology. Right. And I was like, this is, this is a Hail Mary. Like I'm not going to get an interview. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> but 
because they wanted to see someone with expertise in all three of um, uh, research, development, and commercialization. Mm-hmm. I was looking at the posting. I'm just like, wow, this is going to be a very, very thin group of people right. um, who are going to fit all three of those areas um, and, and can still teach competently. Yes. Um, and then I ended up getting shortlisted for that. And like, I got a campus visit. I didn't get the job, but I got a great network out of it. Like I'm still in touch with some, some of the faculty who had considered me and ultimately didn't hire me, but you know, like, it's not like we left on bad terms or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think even my current role, the position was for like machine learning and digital health. And I don't do that. <laughs> um, but it was posted through mechanical engineering. So again, I figured that like, you're not going to get a lot of applicants who do meaningful work in health um, with mechanical backgrounds, but who also do machine learning. Right. Um, so I was kind of like, okay, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll flip the application that I sent to you, Vic, very quick, like 10 minutes to change Victoria with Okanagan, switch with that <laughs> paragraph of like who I can work with on campus. Yes. Um, and then I was shocked to get a first interview and even more shocked to get a second interview. Um and then by the time I came to meet everyone, um, I wasn't surprised when I got the job, except it was COVID. So I was surprised that they didn't cancel the position. So right. <laughs> well, yeah, like cool. you, you truly, truly never know with these things. So I would definitely encourage, you know, even if you're not feeling sure, give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, because your first application probably won't succeed. If it does, then awesome. But if it doesn't, then you have the materials ready to go and you've identified the gaps in your background to work on. Um, to make that next one that much more, that much stronger, um, you know, by the time you actually want the job and care to get hired. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good advice. The, when you go to these interviews, what, what is that? I wonder if, you know, if for students who have maybe never gone into a job interview like that, what do you want to just describe what you, you know, do you have advice for students going into that environment? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, so the first is that if you are getting an interview, you are under serious consideration for the job. So any feelings that you are having of imposter syndrome need to be left behind. Um, because a faculty, you know, think of this from a search committee's perspective. Every single applicant is a or interview is a day of work for a search committee member. Multiply that by five people for the entire search committee. Um there, there is no such thing as a pity interview in this area. So um, know that you belong the instant you set foot on, you know, in the car to get over, you know, or on campus to, to enter that room. Um, I think the second thing is that um, get lots of input and practice. Um, so one of the things that I did to prepare that was really helpful was I got, first of all, I did my job talk and I prepared the slides about two weeks in advance. Um, and I did dry runs with people who'd been on search committees so that they could evaluate the coherence of the talk and ensure that I was coming across as someone who was seriously angling to become a colleague of the people on the search committee, right? So it's not like a graduate student talk where you might bring up one study, um, talk about the detail filter parameters that you're dealing with and like, um, you know, technical details that a search committee is not going to care about, but instead shifting the framing of the talk to like, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is where I'm going. And this is why you need to hire me because the field will collapse if you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
And then the last thing that I did that was really valuable was I looked up um, sample search committee questions. So you can actually, if you go to the internet, um, you can get good guidance on what common questions are because they tend not to change very much from committee to committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got feedback on how I'd respond to these and ensure that my responses to common questions weren't portraying me as someone who came off as totally pathological um, <laughs> or who wasn't serious about the future. Yeah. yeah so. you cl- wow. You clearly did a lot of homework there, but that's a, uh, yeah, the, so, so would you say that the job talk for someone who hasn't put together a job talk, is it like, you know, I sort of imagine the, your PhD proposal, is it l- the equivalent of that, but for your career as, you know, starting off for the first few years, um, but also taking into account, you know, how do you connect those projects to the, whatever the five people or, or the institution that you're joining then how and you know is, is that is it a proposal for your how, how many years would you say you were kind of proposing in that right um, so in terms of the section that described the future um, the way I approached that was I I took about a five-year framework yeah um, so I articulated what my like big picture like 20 year kind of vision for the future was and that was a very kind of broad like, um, you know, we are going to see reductions in the rate of falls and the rate of fall related injuries um, as a result of my innovations in task and environmental design for um, injury prevention. Right. Um, and then I focused on a five-year plan and that is useful in the Canadian context because that aligns with the NSERC discovery grant that people will expect you to apply for if you stay in Canada and do something in the like engineering or biomechanics field. Um, and then I identified kind of a separate line of inquiry that dealt with my clinical type work um, that could be funded through a combination of health research funds. And I'd identified industry partners um, who would be able to support things like my tax proposals um, because, and I think that was important because it came off as a lot more credible than being like, oh, I'm going to get CITR right out of the gate <laughs> with no pilot data <laughs> and <laughs> in a competition with a 10% success rate. Um, so it was important to kind of show the path that I planned out to kind of get to a larger team at the end of it. Yeah. Um, with regard to connecting to other people in the area, um, I tried, I went through, uh, industry partners in British Columbia and in Canada, who'd be a good fit for the work. Um, and I went through the faculty lists of, um, who was situated at UBC Okanagan, not just in engineering, but across the entire, um, institution, Um, And I'd also identified um, community groups who I could work with. So I have some good connections with the older adult and caregiver groups um, who are affiliated with AgeWell. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of my projects actually emerged from discussions with them. So I ensured they were attributed and highlighted their commitment to work with me in the future. Um, And then I think the last thing that I did that was important was I went online and went through the Google Scholar profiles of the people on the search committee and people who I was listing as collaborators. And the reason for that is because their web pages tend to be like 10 years out of date. So um, (laughs) you learn that actually, in some cases, entire research foci have shifted. (laughs) And there were two members of the search committee who I wouldn't have thought would be relevant. And I read their publications in the last two years. And I'm like, oh, 
yeah, you should probably be noted as a collaborator on, on this project, even if you don't want to it, you know, the fit is actually there. So I, that, so the other day I was just talking to somebody about this, how we need to, someone needs to write the script that takes your Google scholar and puts it on your website. Like I cannot find that because it's, it's so hard to keep it up to date. Like even with the modest number of publications I have, it's hard. Like once you get more than one, like one or two, like in your postdoc years, maybe you have one or two or three publications a year coming out. But then once you start getting into the five or six, it's like, wow, I have to like, it's a concerted effort to keep things up to date. And yet that's so important to make sure people know what you're working on now and how things shift over time. But yeah. yeah, do you know of anything like that to that can scrape the publications? Scholar? I don't, yeah. um, except for copying and pasting CV lines whenever the updates are done. I have yeah. a link to my Google Scholar profile on my webpage directly, so yeah, that helps with up to dateness. Um, the other thing I discovered though is that you can couple a Twitter feed with your um webpage, so as long as like. You know, I, I I wouldn't do this for a personal account. I do it for like a lab focused account, right? Because yeah, yeah. that can essentially double as your news feed. Um, that, that's interesting. And the same thing goes with a Facebook profile. So, yes, yeah, that's those are great tips. Yeah, good. Um, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about is going backpedaling a bit because I missed it. But uh, you worked in terms of the teaching you did your deep summer academy experience. You did that for. Two, su- two summers, correct? You were the correct. first person at our lab to do that. And then Ahmed mentioned, you know, Ahmed talked about it in his chat. Um, and so I wonder if you had anything, uh, you know, it, building on what Ahmed said, is there anything different you felt about it or, or would you recommend it to other students, grad students? Yeah, so um, just a very quick clarification. So I don't know if you remember Varun, Varun Ori. Right. Yes, I but do. But he actually kickstarted the entire thing. So right. Um, yeah, did the first course, and then I kind of inherited part of what he developed. I made some changes to kind of fit my own strengths, um, and then yeah, I did it for two years before handing things off to Ahmed. Um, right. So yeah, I think I think thinking more kind of broadly, um, grad school is a great opportunity to pursue stuff that is of interest to you and to build. You know, like it is hard to find other areas where you will have the freedom to be like, okay, I'm going to take off for a week and like run this course because I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with, you know, any other sort of opportunity that can contribute to your training or that you're interested in. Um, so I would definitely recommend, you know, if something comes up that you think is important for your personal development, um, maybe it helps pay the bills. In my case, it definitely funded a vacation. So that was cool. Um, you know, go for it have no guilt about it, um, especially when it comes to whether that opportunity is going to pay you. Um, so yeah, I, I did the Deep Summer Academy thing. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a week long course for high school students. Um, so we ran a course in rehabilitation engineering and I split, we use a combination of um, like lectures and laboratory activities and design projects to um, give students ex- exposure to um, areas of rehab engineering. So this includes like brain machine interfacing, um, pediatric rehabilitation. We had a section on home care, um, had a section on built environment design and safe mobility. Um, so the whole kind of gamut of things. Um, so um, I think that um, for me, it was a really good experience to build confidence in giving presentations. Um, 
So like, Chelek, I actually don't know if you remember this, but there is footage of me in the first few years of research day at Toronto Rehab, where I had, I would take total panic attacks on the stage, like completely freezing in front of the entire audience. You're not the only one. I, I have, there was one where, yeah, I totally blanked. I could not remember anything and kind of deer in the headlights look i think we all have experiences yeah. <laughs> like that totally yeah when you see the audience and like start shaking and um so teaching for me was a really important way to kind of overcome that fear of speaking in public yes. um and it gave me a chance to really turn presenting into a strength i would i would consider presentations a strength now and it certainly wasn't like that when i when i started my grad work mm-hmm. um but yeah i think i think the apart from that the um, the deep opportunity gave me a chance to work with students who were from all around the world. And that was really exciting. Um, some of them got to learn about areas of the field that they didn't even know existed. So that was really cool. Um, and I think it, um, you know, if, if we're talking like ulterior motives here, um, I was able to get a lot of support from other people from, from Toronto rehab and from, like Blue Review and the general community. So I think to like you helped out one year with um, a talk on lifting yes. and a demo. Um, yeah. We were able to bring in a, a field educator from a local home care agency to run the home care activity. So she talked about some of the most challenging experiences that her clients had in care at home. Mm-hmm. And then the students developed something to improve the quality of life or to solve one of the challenges that she discussed earlier that day. Yeah. Um, so that was incredibly compelling. And I'd say, you know, for me as an instructor, just as much as a student, mm-hmm. um, Tim Giblin. So to like, you'll know him for those who don't, he is the tour guide of Toronto rehab. Yes. Um, so he, he was an inpatient for, um, traumatic brain or for acquired brain injury. And I guess his rehabilitation was incredibly successful. So he went from being comatose to, you know, him, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so he also gave a tour and just a spiel to the students on his experience. And that was also very compelling and never gets old to hear about. So seeing, seeing the research described by him for, yeah, with his perspective is, is incredibly interesting. Yeah. For the yeah. Way. To see a, you know, someone who's been a patient come in and be like, no, this is actually the most important thing in the world. <laughs> and, you know, you've been staring at MATLAB for the past six months. You might not see it that way, <laughs> but we see it that way. So <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't, yeah, I think that's pretty good. I think that gives, you've given a lot of really uh, practical advice, perspective on how students can think about approaching grad school, the kind of the job search after grad school. Um, Is there, is there anything else you want to, any other things you want to mention? Anything else? Yeah, I think just um, for the students who might be watching this and making decisions on what to do next, um, I think the first thing that I would say is that um, the right fit will come and it's worth taking the time to find the right fit for you as far as grad work goes. Um, so yeah, if you're, you know, say like me and you were like a high 70s student, um, there will be labs where they're like, oh, you know, your grades are too low, we don't want you that cuts both ways, right? Do you really want to work in a culture that's not going to value what you have to offer? Um, Because for every school or investigator who's like that, there's going to be others who are like, oh, wow, you did a whole bunch of other things during undergrad and you still pulled off a 77 average. You're totally a great fit on our team. Um, So, you know, take the time to find the right fit for you. Um, And, um, you know, kind of on that same token, um, 
it is easy to start grad school. It's not always easy to leave it, right? So if you're really not sure about whether you want to go with a certain program or opportunity, um, my advice is always to work um, because the opportunities will come. Um, and, and the day will come where you'll find, where you'll find one you are sure about doing. Yeah. Um, and it'll just make the entire experience so much more pleasant and enjoyable for everyone involved. Um, if both you and your supervisor are committed to your success in, in the line of work. Um, and I think the last thing that I would say is that the sky truly is the limit. Um, so, you know, you're going to get a whole bunch of well-intentioned advice coming up. Um, take all of it with a grain of salt, including everything I've just told you. <laughs> um, because ultimately you're the one who knows yourself the best, who knows your goals the best, um, and who's really in charge of your own destiny, right? So take ownership of that and, um, enjoy the ride. Great advice. Excellent. Well, that's a great way to leave it there. Thank you very much, Vicky, for joining us. And uh, oh, maybe maybe the one last thing we should do is, you know, you, maybe if there's a student out there that's interested in what you're doing now, are you looking for students in a particular with, with particular interests that should get in touch with you? Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> so, yes, um, recruiting for me, recruitment for me is an ongoing process. Um, it is application season, and so if anyone is interested, we can work to help get external funding to help you come out here. Um, my work looks at preventing falls and fall-related injuries by getting a better sense of, um, in particular, how people's tasks like carrying groceries or like walking home from the store in the winter um, affect fall and injury risk. And I also do a lot on environmental design, so looking at how things like um, handrail design or um, you know, aspects of the workplace affect whether someone gets hurt or not. Um, so, uh, proposals and projects are still kind of in the works. Um, but yeah, if it's something that's of interest to you, you know, there's no harm in opening the discussion and I will be recruiting a lot in the next two years. Um, and the reason why you want to work with me, first of all, is because I network with the awesome people like Tilak. Um, <laughs> no, I do have a really great network. And honestly, my friends are bigger than I am. Um, so after this call, I'm going to be jumping onto a call with um, some people, um, some friends from the technology and aging older adult and caregiver community. Um, so Tilak, you'll know Ron Beleno and possibly Roger Marple. Yes. Um, so we work together and we're friends, right? And they're, they're in this to mentor students because they're awesome. So yeah. you're the best at this, at networking. Absolutely. I, I remember that about you while you were here, you're always connected to all the right people and, um, and connect, and, and you're also great at connecting people when they need something that you're, you're one of those people that reaches out and says, Hey, did you know about this person? Did you, you should talk to this person. And it's such a valuable, uh, person to have around to, to point out what else is going on. Yeah. Uh, appreciate it. Well, you know, when, when you're leaving undergrad with a 77 average and backs to the wall, you need to, uh, you need to get good at finding that person who's going to take you. So, yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much, Vicki, for joining us and, uh, yeah, best of luck with everything. And I hope some great students get in touch with you soon. Yeah. Same to you, Tilak. This was a pleasure. <laughs>